welcome back everybody uh, to our last set. Um, uh, our next writer, um, Toby Broom, his book, Englishman, is a self-published memoir relaying the true life adventures of an English black music fanatic who dreamt of becoming the next David Rodigan, but found the going far harder than he bargained for. Told with self-deprecating humour, priceless set pieces and rich character portraits, a plenty, Englishman is a dub vendor bestseller and a must-read for any music lover or supporter of the underdog. Please welcome to the stage Toby Broom. Thank you very much. Um, so here I am living the dream uh, as a pirate radio DJ. How I got onto the station is relayed in the book. But the first point of contact was a station meeting. This was in 2001 um, in a rather unsalubrious uh, pub in Battersea. Uh, and I friended up, just before the extract, I friended up uh, the only other English guy on the station who's actually um, here this evening, um, Kevin. So here's the station meeting at my first pirate radio station meeting. Fridge and a tall, dignified, knowing man with a clipped moustache next to him opened the proceedings up shortly before eight, by which time I totted up the numbers to 20 or so with further groups of teenage boys adding to the more senior persons present. The first item on the agenda was what we should call the station. Star UK was a working name for a station only just on the air, and 99.5 FM was the frequency. Variations on the style theme were knocked around between four or five speakers. UK style, London style, style FM. This meandered along for 20 minutes or so before coming back to style UK. The man next to Fridge, Bagger John on Kevin's intelligence, declared that style UK 99.5 it was, and on we went. After settling this, I was expecting the runnings to be fully laid out. Location of the studio, security protocols, broadcasting codes of practice, rules, but no. On we went into an even longer discussion on the optimum agreed size of a garage crew, the groups of DJs and MCs creating the soundtrack of the inner city at that time. It became clear that the numerous teenagers around the table were actually from different crews. Two Twisted, led by the musically dangerous looking cruiser, turned out to be strongly represented, as were small soldiers the Kennard Cartel, the Infrared Crew, and last, but by no means least, the Pimp Squad. The lads were lobbying for some flexibility as crew numbers varied widely. Kevin and I agreed in whispered asides that factoring in school holidays against, say, groundings must come into play on crew assemblage matters as much as creative considerations. Each had their say seeking a ceiling of around eight or ten. Fridge and Bagger weren't having that and set the limit to some disgruntlement at four. By now, it was a quarter to nine. Next, we broke off to greet Romeo of the then chart-riding garage collective So Solid crew, whose 21 seconds to flow was the urban crossover hit of that season. He joined the throng very unobtrusively and shyly gave an autograph to the lady in a beret dedicated to Spice C. I drank it all in and turned expectantly towards Fridge, hoping he'd resume the proceedings and frankly cut the piratical chase. To my consternation, the meeting then just petered out with nearly all the key issues 
unaddressed. Kevin and I buttonholed Bagger at the bar. He welcomed us aboard, listened very patiently to my plans for world sound system domination, and then smoothly referred me to Fridge for the specifics on the station. Fridge was still settling some afters on the garage crew numbers issue with the youngsters and seemed relieved to have someone nearer his own age to talk to. He drew me to one side and gave me the pirate runnings. The station studio was in a unit of a business centre on the Battersea Park Road, accessed at the back from Warrener Road. There was a keypad entry to an outer gate to which Fridge gave me the code, rolling his eyes amusedly as I carefully wrote it down in my work pocket diary. There was a further code for the door to the building, which I also noted down in the same way into the same reaction. I guess the others just memorized them. The studio was in unit 109 up the stairs to the left. First show this Saturday. Super G would be on before me to show me and let me in. No door knock code? Fridge or Ricky would pop by after three to show me the style pirate ship ropes and help me get a feel of the equipment to get me under sail. Okay? Yes, I think I can cope with all of that. That was the Thursday. Two days later, uh, Saturday afternoon, it's my first show on Style UK 99.5. I arrive at the station. Super G showed me into a compact, windowed, oblong, empty storeroom, six foot by ten foot, with a church hall trestle table along the right-hand wall. On the table stood a pair of battered decks, a very basic mixer, a microphone, and a low cliff of other reject stereo parts. Two aerials abundant with thick black wiring lay unconnected to anything on the floor against the left-hand wall. Two reclaimed office swivel chairs stood idle further down the wall, and apart from a small ghetto blaster on a short filing cabinet to the right of the trestle table, that was it. Super G's mellifluous selections were coming out of the ghetto blaster, but I had no clue as to how that could possibly be happening. A prehistoric Nokia on the table rang once to add to the mystery. The all-important studio hotline? I inquired of Super G. Yes, man, it doesn't always work, though. No surprises there, but how did the broadcasting bit work? I just couldn't see anything that would make the radio play the show. Burning curiosity fast overcame my desire to play it cool. So, Super G, how does it all work? There's a Han. A witch? A Han. Look, I did. Blue tack to the right-hand side of the window frame was a mini piezo-style speaker, no more than an inch square, from which two thin wires ran into the back of the mixer. A horn. Super G then pointed to the other side of Battersea Park Road to a tower block opposite. Heriel Abdesso. Point the Han at the Heriel and you reach and teach the people them. <laughs> so that's how it's done. Made the old license fee look, look a bit pricey, I must say. <laughs> the mother of all mysteries solved, I began some breathing exercises to get myself ready for my debut. Fridge rolled in just before three, and in no time at all, I was stood at the microphone listening to the three o'clock adverts with Swing Easy by the Soul Vendors cued. My main preoccupation was getting the voice right and not sounding like the Duke of Devonshire, Tim Westwood, or anyone else in between, not least my inspiration, David Rodigan. 
A meaty thumbs up from Fridge, who was standing by to press play on a disintegrating Sony mini-disc Walkman he'd produced out of his coat pocket earlier, and I took, into a, a, I took a leap into the unknown. You're listening to Star UK 99.5, and this is the big people music show, a brand new show for Saturday afternoons with me, Mr. Swing Easy. Roll the theme tune, DJ Fridge. Hit it! Not bad. A bit posher than I'd hope, been hoping for, and I still have no idea where Hit It came from. But we were underway, and Swing Easy by the Soul Vendors, with Johnny Moore's beguiling trumpet line, been from a Han to a Heriel on top of a tower block in Battersea, and to who knows where, and to who knows whom. It was an unbelievable moment. Thank you. Uh, on sale at the back, obviously. Thank you very much, Toby Broom. Uh, our next writer, James Nuttall, is a British-born writer who published his first novel in 2014. Since then, he's written a book of short stories and knows that there are other novels in there waiting to come out. His writing tends to focus on modern takes on world culture, folklore, and the human's fascination with stories. He currently lives in London, and in his spare time, he writes and catalogues mythical beasts. Please welcome to the stage James Nuttall. Can you hear me? Okay, I was uh, told a long time ago to write what I know. And um, as a white, fairly boring young man living in uh, Japan, uh, I wrote a novel about a 1930s black blues musician who sold his soul to the devil. So, yeah, I hope you like it. Uh, it would be sold at the back, but my printer let me down today, so there's nothing there. But if you, would like, if you would like a copy, please talk to me afterwards. Okay. <clears throat> this is called Preaching Blues. Every story begins with me. I'm first to be called, last to be released. When you struggled from your mama, I was the one who pointed you to the slit of light that split the womb. And I told you it was right to be afraid but fearing the light was better than dying in the darkness. My stories are old and new all at once. When folks first spoke back in the dusty plains and decorated coconuts with shells to make them faces, it was me who granted them ingenuity. I know the way the gods speak as well as how humans spin a song. I gobble down the food you give and drink the bottle dry. I exist in the sacred nonsense babbled in tongues beyond what most can comprehend. I walk the roads among the confusion and making life spring from nothingness, seeking sport and divulging opportunity. I am between you and the gods, the gatekeeper, the locksmith, the cunt with all the aces, and mine is the hope that someday you will reach the divine and prevail, for the road is treacherous. See the face of God and be damned for it all. I see the patterns in roads, in sex, in drink, I dance to the beat of a million drums and pull you up into the circle to join me. 
How fine it is to be alive. How fine it is to be drunk, violent, and gluttonous. How fine it is to fuck. How fine it is to be issue. To play power against power is a delight. Once I had two brothers who were always squabbling. So I told the first there was no water in the sky, and he stopped the rain. The land was consumed by drought. And then I told the other to set the world on fire, and he did. And the only way to stop it was to make it rain, and so that they could get on again. Working together, they protected the land. It meant they didn't need to fight anymore. They could just be angry with me. I didn't give them the whole tale, only enough to put them to task. Brother, why do you trick us, they demanded. Why are you so easily tricked, I replied, and cackled at their dismay. I'm alive on earth. I feel the wind upon my cheeks and the delight of cold water, of hearing the storm. I smell the scorched earth and it is fine as the damp. How fine it is to hold the secrets, to speak with other worlds, to swim in rivers and in thunderclaps. How fine it is to be afflicete. Once youthful and spry, I grow bent and crippled with new stories. I have to prop up myself with a cane Coming to the evening of existence and stripped of my robes, I'm dressed in rags, and my feet are bare as I walk my dusty roads. I'm aware of it all. I hear the deceitful exchange, the spiteful lie, the wet sound of the knife. I have the knowledge of death and the privilege of malice and power. Trickery is the test, the passage, the road. And all roads cross where I am, for decisions are made near me. Once confusion is overcome, wisdom arises. Passing through the flames teaches us more than what can be learned from staying in safety. My skin is black from burning, passing through the fire and dragging it all with me. How can you be wise if you have not been burned? And how can you be brave if you have not jumped when the chance was there? The smell of smoke fills my nose, the taste of powder, the dust between my toes. With my back bent, I don't delight in the trickery of youth, but instead, wryly grin at its perpetual folly, forever making the same mistake, foolish children torn and lost. Come, sit on my lap, and I'll whisper secrets to you. And how fine it is to breathe smoke and quaff whiskey, to know the unknown and remain aloof. How fine it is to wander roads and bewilder gods and mortals. How fine it is to be Legba. Newer stories come and the old ones blur and blend till no one's sure what was being said first. A new people hear the stories brought to this place by my chained people and cannot comprehend these tales of trickery and malice. My folk, too, are confused by the new outlandish white stories they hear of benign spirits singing in the clouds and the nasty fellow leaving everyone astray. Together, they come, they place another name upon my shoulders so that I become someone they recognize and fear. I am named after the sunshine and feel the heat of the flames behind my eyes. Now I am the greatest of a host that strays away and is cast down by the Almighty. My brothers are renamed too and I become the one to lead them astray, spurning humanity like the clayborn they are. Let me whisper in your ears and talk of earthly pleasures that good books don't speak about. Once again, all roads are mine. But in the simple minds of these new folk, there are only two roads, to the cloud or to the pit. I'm reborn once more, forever young, forever beautiful, and forever strong, immortalized in paper, in hearts, 
Folks pray to someone else, but I'm always in the back of their minds. They feel my hands upon their shoulders and my harsh breath on the back of their necks. This adoration does not end with me. Soon my folk learn that anyone who plays the blues is a devil's child, cursed through association. And it's my music they claim, and nothing good can come of it, for it only comes from me. Blood is sin and magic and pain. It's earthly, real music, and that's what frightens them most of all. For who can go to heaven if they are tied to the world? How fine it is to be feared, to know the secret of the heavens. How fine it is to be the ultimate trickster and have the best music at my fingertips. How fine it is to sow discord and sneer at the supplicant groveling in the dirt. How fine it is to be Satan. While my roads are long, they lead everywhere eventually. I'm called without folks realizing, but it's usually that they want me around. A lot don't know they're getting my attention, and those that do aren't, ain't always glad they got it. A person's got to have a spark about them to catch my ever-roaming ro eye. I love a fellow who can spin a tale, a girl who can drink, and anyone who, too, who ain't too afraid of nothing. And in the Mississippi back in the 1930s, there were still some about who knew my name and plenty that have heard it. Lots of my wailered little ones struggling, strutting their steps in the new word, just like I did before. Along the way, you'll see me from time to time. And while you may not remember me, I'll never forget you. I'll give you advice and aid, whether you want it or not. And the smart child listens to me, but the smarter child knows my answers ain't always the truth. Roads are my business, and walking them's yours. They're the bloodstream of the world, roads are. Folks trip-trapping all, all along them, getting from one place to another. Without a railway or a road, there wouldn't be no places. There wouldn't be no people, no ideas, nothing. Without roads, there wouldn't be no world. Everything is connected, you see, by roads. Thank you. Thank you, James. Our next writer, Oliver Cable, was born to English parents in Holland and currently lives in London. As a result, he's not entirely sure where he's from. In the 10 years since writing his first poem, he's written short form poetry and prose, inspired and influenced by jazz, travel, and the absurdity of daily life. After following a creative writing course at UEA, he turned his hand to writing longer pieces, but to this day, he still enjoys a good four line poem. Fresh Air and Empty Streets is his debut novel, and you can buy it from the bookstore. Please welcome to the stage Oliver Cable. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for being here. Great venue. I love Brixton. I love the Hootenanny, so it's a real pleasure to be here for you all. Thank you. Um, this is my first novel, Fresh Air and Empty Streets. Um, I wrote it following a trip to Paris that I took about two years ago. It's available at the bookstore in the back, and I'm very happy to sign it for you all. The book is about a young man named Felix who um, goes to Paris to find out more about his dad who left the family to become an artist and to follow his passion. To, it's about his struggle between love of woman and love of art. And there's a part in Paris where the two sit down by the Seine and listen to live jazz. And that's what I'm going to be performing for you. Down here, Felix asked. 
Alexander nodded and pushed ahead as they picked their way down the steps, clambering past students of all origins and French people of all ages, toward a wall of sound storming up at them from a group of about 10 musicians. This was clearly a meeting spot. Most sitting down were armed with cheap cans of lager or bottles of wine. The music climbed the steep wall between them and the road, crept into the gaps in the cobblestones and was reflected on the happy faces, numbering a hundred or more. Felix found his mood lifting with the music. Alexander cracked the bottle open and they sat in, in silence, yet far from silence, drinking in the atmosphere and the wine. The music continued relentlessly as Felix drank from the bottle almost without realizing. The saxophone rasped over the top, blowing a solo into the year's early air, while the double bass tones sat fat like a bullfrog in the background. All members of the band stood, even the drummer, choosing to hang his scaled-down set from his neck as if in a marching band. A flute player, who Felix had hardly noticed, piped up with the solo of string springtime birdsong that sounded like it came from the very trees above them. Felix found himself drifting on the music, carried along on the wine biting his lips, but inside felt warm and at ease. He rose up on the synchronicity of the music, the perfect balance of sounds and the swaggering style with which they played. Each musician grooved their own part, both musically and physically, moving and swaying to the sounds plucked from the air, part rehearsed, part purely felt. When the piece receded into silence, Felix found himself applauding, back in the real world and surrounded by real people. I was miles away, Felix said as he gasped for breath. Alexander couldn't help but smile a smile of nostalgia. They sat in silence a little longer, basking in the applause, clattering off the walls like hailstones. As the next song came around, a tourist boat growled into view on the river. Stacked to the rafters again with tourists, at night these boats were armed with lights that would make many a construction site proud, lighting up the banks of the Seine and giving the tourists on board the impression they were actually seeing something, without realizing, of course, that what these tourists came to see was the night light, street light views of Paris. But then, Felix thought, people do weird things in the name of money. As the boat passed by, these lights fell over the scene, engulfing the musicians and the punters in a harsh glow. As Felix watched, the motley collection of the homeless man, the local, the tourist, and the musician were scattered onto the walls of the Seine, a silhouette portrait in which everyone's shadow was simultaneously everyone else's, no man and every man at the same time. The scene blurred lines between the known and the unknown, the friend and the stranger, bonding all stories into a storybook tableau that Felix could not draw his eyes away from. The tuba player became a cobra, his head writhing in time with the music and spitting jazz over the river where it floated lazily on the breeze and settled on the tide. The sax became a dancing bear, breaking free from daytime captivity to sing a song of freedom. The double bassist became even more one with his instrument, holding it as he would a dance partner, but slapping it with incredible vigor. As heads bobbed in black and brick, Felix knew it was the most beautiful thing he had ever seen. While the vision combined with the music as part of the show, sporadic, absurd, and free, Felix imagined himself on the boat, 
harboring a longing to join the folk on the bank, to linger and to hear the full richness of the music over the drone of the engines. Now, though, he realized, he was free to remain sitting, wine bottle in hand and frequently at his lips, dance, drinking in the scene for as long as it lasted. And it would end, as everything in this world did. As sure as the passing of seasons, at some point during the evening, the musicians would pack away their instruments, their magical sound machines, and up and go to their beds or somebody else's. He'd be left, dropped back into the real world, confronted by the fact that he was now again sitting next to Alexander, this man who had caused he and his mother such pain. Thank you very much. Have a good night. Thanks so much, Oliver. Um, our final writer, Matthew Miles, writes fiction from the intersection of live feed dreams and unmade beds. Alongside a stack of short stories, he has recently finished his first novel, The Idea of Someone Else. Matthew is also a filmmaker and writes on identity, culture, and mental health for publications including ID, Attitude, Fault, and Gay Times. Please welcome to the stage, Matthew Miles. Good evening, everyone. Last person on the stage. Uh, I'm going to read from my novel, The Idea of Someone Else. It's about a disaffected teenager who's resentful of his family's lost wealth, and he plays dark games that entrap his single mother and gay brother in uh, games that put their identities into doubt. <laughs> we can start. Thank you. I get a round of applause for doing nothing. That's great. Okay, here we go. Alec thought death was a black full stop, but he's buried a friend who keeps coming back for more. There are ways to keep the past out. Close the curtains. Stay in bed. Put Finding Nemo on repeat. And then a sound starts swimming with the sharks. The sound of screeching breaks. There's a smashed wind, windscreen in the coral and shoals of blood that get closer, form a face. When that happens, Alec tries to remember Taylor the way everyone remembers him. He goes online, looks at tributes. They come with pictures, like a photograph is all Taylor needs to prove he lived. His face is ripped from fashion stories, posted, snapped, blogged, shared, one picture gets used the most. It comes from a magazine that wasn't published until after Taylor died. He sits on top of a tower in Tokyo, his legs hanging over the edge. His back is to the camera, and he stares over his shoulder, directly at you. The neon beyond is blurry, faint. It doesn't stand a chance. Taylor has a silver disc in his ear and a tattoo on his back, and he doesn't look like Alex's friend anymore. Underneath the picture, Black letters spell Taylor Ward in loving memory. There's an article that says, some people are shooting stars. Their energy's so intense, it's too much for the skin between this life and whatever is on the other side. Comments trail it, and Alec closes the page, stops the search. They're talking about a photograph. There are people on other sites talking about the fierce reality and iconic power of someone they've seen in photographs. They don't know Taylor. 
They haven't sat with him in cars, in car parks, making five quid last a night. They hadn't seen him shivering out drugs in the back seat, his eyes all rabbit shot, same as when he ran from the vine, the time he said more than he could handle, and it looked like the fists were coming down. And they didn't know there was a Saturday afternoon when Taylor, second best Taylor, started to take the lead. He said he wanted to show Alex something, and Taylor pulled off his T-shirt and turned his back. He said, what do you think? The tattoo was big, across his right shoulder. It was based on the Ferrari stallion, the one that's been on Alex's wall since he was eight, wherever he's lived. Richer, poorer, the same horse, Alex's horse. The one Alex got etched on his own shoulder and that Taylor, Taylor did better. His was fractal, diagonal, transformed with aqua hues, as close to a hologram as something on skin could get. Taylor said it took three sessions to lift a major part of Alec and graft it onto himself. He'd been hiding it for weeks, and it took too long for Alec to find any words. All he could think about was how each needle on Taylor drew more colour from Alec's life. Sue starting to blank him, the grades so low they were falling off the college wall. Taylor saying he'd be going to New York for winter in a penthouse of models. Now, Taylor was sat on Alec's bed with his back turned, waiting for approval. And Alec? Alec was someone whose calls would go unanswered, who'd maybe go to Luton, not New York. Alec was someone who said, you shouldn't have done the horse. Taylor's last photo shoot was near the end of a line of victories, and he wanted Alec to come. He said, you might get ideas for your graphics. Alec didn't want to be a passenger, but his excuses multiplied, got worse, so he went. There was a studio, lights, and girls. They leaned around Taylor on high heels, long legs, looking at his tattoo. They said, it's hot, and it's genius. Alec could have pulled off his T-shirt, shown that he had the tattoo first, but his body, his face, they weren't as good. His ink was not as good. And anyway, the stylist had made him a waiter, and he was holding a tray of drinks. The crew, the models, Taylor, they got circled by Alec and his Coke Zero. When it was gone, the photographer told him to find more. That's when Alec threw the tray, headed for the door. He shouldn't have looked back, but he did. Taylor was staring at him. Everyone stared. Then the photographer took a Polaroid of Taylor's ink. Whatever you put on your skin, in your skin, one day you end up getting flowers. Alec has them in his lap as his mum drives into the place Taylor died. She steers the car and she says healing things and things from the internet. Police, parent, it's all anyone talks about. For once he's listening, blanking out the journey, the bit Alec can't bear to watch because nobody knows he was there. They don't know how fast it was, how it sounded, how it felt to step out of the car unscathed. Alex stands there now, sticks the flowers to a grey metal post. It's become a totem pole of supermarket bouquets, and it's been a while. Most of the flowers are broken down. Felt-tip hearts bleed into post-it notes, and there's blood in Alex's eyes every day too. It blooms across the windscreen where a friend's face should have been, and Alex's life is framed by Taylor's death. He steps back from the post and stares far beyond the fields. Out there, the cheap lights of the motorway are orange stitches in the night. Taylor is there. Taylor is always there. Even after what Alex's done, Taylor wants to pull the seam apart and climb back in. 
This time, Alec runs towards him. He runs and he keeps running as his mother calls his name. There's a place where he's too far gone to be seen or heard. Alec kneels to the ground and digs dirt with his hands. He drags up a plastic bag, tears it open, pulls out a phone, Taylor's phone. For a while, it's as much as he can do to hold it. Now, he turns it on. Thank you, Matthew Miles. And that's it for this evening's literary feast. Uh, from everyone here at the Brixton Book Jam, I'd like to thank all of you for braving the rain to be with us this evening. Um, a huge thank you to all our writers who read this evening and to Robert Hacker Jessett for his set earlier. Thank you also to our sound and lighting team and to our wonderful host, Hoot and Annie Brixton. Don't forget you can sign up to our email updates at brixtonbookjam.com and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Brixton Book Jam. We love hearing from you on social media and it really helps us to support our writers and to get the word out about this great free local event. Uh, the next Brixton Book Jam will be here at the Hootenanny on Monday the 2nd of October. So put that in your diaries, bring some friends and have a wonderful summer of reading until then. Thank you all. Thank you.